0: I'm your host, David Reinstrom. This is the fourth time we'll be featuring work by The Truth on Radio Drama Revival, and it'll also be the second time Jonathan's been interviewed here. If you'd like to hear the interview Jonathan did with Fred, hop into our archives and look for episode 380. Stories done by the Truth team have a very filmic quality. You'll hear Jonathan talk in our interview about the cinema and cinematic sound design that's influenced him. That filmic tone is very much on purpose— the tagline for the program is Movies for Your Ears. So let's get right down to it. While I thread the film into the projector, we're going to listen to a piece recorded on location in Kilfinan, County Limerick, Ireland, during the Hearsay Festival last year. Give a listen and enjoy The, the Man, Man in, in the Barn. barn.
1: My first memory is the cold. I was walking barefoot on soft wet grass. I was wet. It was night. I kept walking until I found people.
2: It's foolish to be out in the cold like this. You're welcome in my home.
1: I wait for her to go, but she doesn't. She just waits.
2: I don't know who you are, but I want to help you.
1: I don't know my name, or how old I am, or where I'm from.
2: I know you've been sleeping in my barn. My name is Grace.
1: Grace. Not sure I can talk.
2: Please. Well, you're very welcome. Whoever you are.
1: I'm very welcome.
3: This cable box is supposed to be superior.
1: Grace and her husband, Jimmy. I can hear them talking from outside. I have very good hearing. I'm very welcome. Grace. Gracie. It's hard for them to look at me. When I see myself in the mirror, I understand why.
2: touch your forehead. Is that all right? I'll have to take you to town to the hospital. No hospital. What happened to you out there? Can't you talk? But you'll have to eat. Will you try some soup? table then for
1: you. Grace and Jimmy are trying very hard to be quiet. If I concentrate at night, I can hear their hearts beating. They can't sleep. They're afraid.
2: How do you suppose he got all burnt like that?
1: of things like Jimmy's television even when it's off I can hear it the problem is with his router I'm pretty sure I can fix it
3: disputes are looming but our workers looking for two get what you
2: need
3: together trouble sleeping what are you doing you're doing very well what's next who got the television
1: working again Look at that. Days pass before they start to relax. In the meantime, I do what seems right. I do what I can to help.
3: The guy's done it again.
1: He's a regular magician.
2: Aren't you going to thank him?
3: Oh yeah. Thank you, young fella. He must have been a mechanic or something before, you no, know, whatever happened
2: we should call him something Just think of a name Adam Adam does that work for you
1: people treat you differently when you have a name they open up to you
3: do you know what Adam it's humiliating to be dependent on other people don't tell Jimmy I told you this but he's really glad that you're here Gracie's an angel, but I can't say I've been as good to her as she deserves.
2: It's good for him, you know, to have another man to talk to. He's one tough nut and he won't admit it.
3: I was sick, you know. That's why I'm so useless and walk with this thing.
2: We had a son once. That's his room you've been sleeping in, actually. I miss him terribly. It gets so lonely sometimes.
1: People like talking about their feelings. They like it when you talk to them and tell them how you feel. They want to connect.
3: Tonight, Gracie, you are the honoured guest of Chez Jimmy. Mm. With the assistance of sous-chef Adam. Nothing to be done. Just sit back, enjoy a drink let us do all the work this evening
2: isn't this a nice surprise
3: bon appétit my love why thank you Jimmy Adam I know you don't like to eat much but it's a special occasion and we'd all like to break bread together what do you say thank you Jimmy what was that
1: thank you
2: you can talk.
1: People like to be thanked. It seems to have made them happy.
3: As far as I can filter out, it's a village that don't exist.
1: Why is that funny, Jimmy? Must be Irish. Well, you don't get it. It's a short
3: place. get it. If you want to see it, it won't be there at all.
1: Is there a fire? What? I don't know where that's coming from.
2: That's coming from?
1: Are you okay? Adam? It lasts all night. I'm finding it hard to think clearly. Something is wrong. The door. It's for me.
2: Hello, can I help
4: you? I'm sorry to bother you. I'm Elizabeth Coram. I work with the Merit Group. Do you know
2: it? No, sorry, I don't. Can I have a word? What's this about? It's actually quite sensitive. Would you mind if I came in for a minute? Yes, please. Jimmy, we've got company. Can I offer you a cup of tea? No, I'm fine. It's no trouble, I'm making some myself. I'll have a cup then, thank you.
4: How do you do?
3: Fine. Do
4: you take sugar or milk or both? Sugar would be nice.
2: I don't have any here. I'd have to run to town for it. We don't Uh, use much sugar. All right, the
4: tea's fine. Can I talk to you for a minute? Okay. I wonder if the two of you have seen anything out of the ordinary recently. I'm looking for someone who I believe is in this area.
2: I can't say that we have. You're sure?
4: Nothing at all? Nope. Okay, well the individual I'm looking for is in need of help.
3: What kind of help?
4: It's sensitive, I'm afraid. But if you had seen him, you'd be doing him and me a great favour if you could take me to
2: him. What did you say you're with again? An institution. Sorry, but we haven't seen anybody. Well, would you mind taking a look
4: at a photograph, just in case? This is the individual I'm looking for. Does he look familiar? No. Right. I'm going to show you this. This is a photo of the men he killed. Three of them he tore apart. Smashed the other skulls.
1: Did I really hurt those people?
4: So are you sure you haven't seen anything?
2: Okay. Mind if I have a look around then? We certainly do mind if you look around.
1: She wants to eliminate me. Why?
4: You seem like nice, decent people. This man I'm looking for, is not a man. It looks like a man, but it's not... a machine. A machine? A failed experiment. And a dangerous one at that. So can you please let me look around?
2: You're not listening to me. I can't allow you to go tracing around here without a I need you folks to stand back. I'll call the guards. Excuse me. Jimmy, call the guards. Okay.
4: in the barn
1: my first memory is the cold I was walking barefoot on soft wet grass I was wet it was night how long ago was that what happened before I can't remember
4: I know you're in here give yourself over then No one needs to get hurt. She's afraid. I'm here to help.
1: She's not here to help me. Where is this? I found the beacon. It was in my head. I pulled it out.
4: No. No!
1: And I'm again thinking clearly. I watch her from far away. She looks worried. I could hurt this woman. I could tear her apart. But I won't. Grace and Jimmy wouldn't like that. Grace and Jimmy, my friends, I never get to say goodbye.
3: Hey, I nearly hit you. Do a lift.
1: I'm fine walking. You sure? Thank you.
3: Okay, you got yourself, all right? Thank
1: you.
0: And that was The Man in the Barn, recorded on location in Ireland. I don't want to say too much more about that because it's going to be the first thing you hear in our interview with Jonathan Mitchell, coming right after this break. I spoke to Jonathan Mitchell, the creator of The Truth, a few weeks ago. Our conversation went all over the place, from experimental music to the state of the medium to places to get brunch in Chelsea. But guest producer Eli McElveen molded us into shape. Take a listen. Jonathan, thank you so much. Welcome back to Radio Drama Revival. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So I'm thinking about playing The Man in the Barn before this interview.
5: Uh-huh.
0: So The Man in the Barn is a piece that you recorded on location in County Limerick in Ireland. That's right. Um how how often do you get to record on location in a space that isn't a car?
5: Whenever the story calls for it, that's what I'll want to do. Like we did like there's a story we did called Sylvia's Blood that i knew i wanted to get tape of them walking around the woods and out in a field and i wanted to get way far away from traffic so we went to a farm about an hour and a half out of town and um that really made a difference i think i think also like going someplace like making that that extra effort to go someplace kind of i guess it keeps the actors on their toes it makes it feel mm-hmm. more like a special thing sure um, and so I think the performances really benefit from it.
0: How did you make contact with Irish Public Radio? Because I know you were going to the Hearsay Festival. Right. Actually, the, uh, um,
5: what happened was Jermid uh runs the Hearsay Festival. Okay. And he connected me with RTE as something that might be a nice extension of the festival. I, I had given a talk to um, an organization called AirPie, which is an organization for independent radio producers in Ireland. And so I gave, a, I gave this talk and um, Diarmid was there. And so I met him there and I guess he was just a fan of the podcast, you know, and he was in New York and we had lunch while he was here and he said, hey, I got this. I think I can get you a commission from the RTE, uh, something that you'd be into. And so, So he made it happen. I mean, it was really him. He got the actors together. He got the farm. He got the commission. He got the money. <laughs> he, Where did
0: you take him to lunch?
5: <laughs> it was just a yeah across the street. But yeah, he he was really really great. Yeah, and his festival hearsay. Um, I highly recommend everyone go to it. Um, it's it was just one of the most incredible, fun things I've I've done in audio. Um, it's it's in this really small town. I think it's, I think seven hundred people in the town. Oh my god. There's like one, one restaurant with Wi-Fi, you know, and uh, at night everyone just sort of wanders from pub to pub and you just find the pub where everyone's at.
0: Is Hearsay just for fiction or is it for all kinds of No, content?
5: it's for radio in general. It's for audio. I, I guess it's an audio arts festival. So cool. there were a lot of um, – it's like sort of interdisciplinary in a lot of ways. It's like there's a lot of film sound people. Like a mm-hmm. lot of the talks I went to were um, sound design for film.
0: Is there anything from the world of film sound design that you've picked up and, like, stolen and put into the truth?
5: Probably. I think I was really influenced by Walter Murch, Apocalypse Now in particular, and uh, The the Conversation, and THX 1138, which are all films he worked on the sound for.
0: And, um, oh, Soderbergh, Steven Soderbergh. Oh right, because you've you've said that Sex Lies and Videotape was like a huge influence on you. Yeah,
5: that was that was one of the biggest influences. I'd say on my life, that was one of the biggest influences on my life. Why is that? Um, it just it 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 sparked my obsession with film. It made it seem like that was like a doable thing to make a film. Uh, it was the first screenplay I ever read. Um, it, it was the first um, first like DVD extras I ever became obsessed
0: with. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I it, think they were weren't they LaserDisc extras? Yeah, LaserDisc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you've said in other interviews that you felt when you began working on The Truth that you had a lot of a, a lot to learn about fiction storytelling. Yeah. Uh, but before that, you worked as a documentarian for a decade and a half. What craft did you bring from nonfiction, from radio nonfiction, to the practice of fiction?
5: Um, I think that the biggest th- way that that informed what I do now is the way that i edit stories i i think doc, making documentaries uh the process is is more along the lines of you you go out and collect a lot of material and then you shape the story in the editing and um it, a lot of it is generating material and then you kind of are reacting to what you get it's like a very reactive the writing process is when I started doing The Truth, I was working with improvisers a lot. I still am, but that was, it was a, sort of played a much bigger role in our process at the, in the beginning, I think, than it does now um, because I was, I, that was just something I feel, felt really comfortable with. I thought, and I've been taking improv classes, so I knew a lot of improvisers, and I, I'd, I'd seen a lot of people I knew I wanted to work with. And I thought if I got some really great improvisers in the studio, we could probably make some pretty cool stuff. Also I I've been working at Radio Lab at that time mm-hmm. and they use a lot of improvisatory techniques in their story writing you know where um the hosts talk they're 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 usually improvising and there's a lot of um like, generation of of back and forth and and iterative writing
0: where you generate a lot of material and then you fill it in. So that's kind of their thing is that Jad and Robert have the reporter come in and summarize their findings, right? Yeah. yeah. And then they kind of cut between that to create the frame?
5: Right. But the way that they do that is they'll record the interview and then they'll record Jad and Robert and then, I mean, they do, the process isn't as fluid as it, generally, as it comes off in the final product. Sure. Um, It's, it's actually much less linear. It's like <laughs> you'll end up recording like phrases and inserting words to make things make sense. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's h- highly edited and it's really written in the editing. And that's always something that I mean, that's been true of my work all along. Um, I just really feel comfortable editing sound. And I like working directly with sound. That's my favorite part of the whole process is 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 taking the raw tape and and then trying to make a piece out of it, you know.
0: Now, you came of age studying music at University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana and at Mills College working with magnetic tape. Yeah. I'm a wee baby boy. I've only ever known um, digital audio workstations. What's it like to – what was it like to work with tape?
5: Well, the thing I like about it is that you're making an object. Like it's something that actually is a physical thing that exists – that contains on it the sound you know there's something mm-hmm. about like objectifying sound in that way that i I really l- responded to um like uh, treating sound as a fixed media art form uh, it was really what, what do you what do you mean by that well it's like a it's a, like a sculpture it's like a sculpture, okay. and so like because you're making an object, I sort of saw it as a form of sculpture you know you're taking little bits of pieces of tape and and taping them together, and creating a sequence of these sounds that only exist on the tape, you know, there's something very direct about the
0: physicality of it that I I found appealing. It's interesting to think about it in terms of sculpture, because the way you're describing that sounds like an additive process, and the way that I think of classical sculpture, and maybe this is the way that people traditionally made documentary radio, is that you have the block of marble, and you see something inside of it to chip away, right?
5: Well it depends on what kind of sculpture you're making. You could also add things, you know. <laughs> it doesn't have to be marble, it could be clay or junk that you find. Yeah. There's something also about the mechanical nature of tape machines and um like making tape loops and like actually running the the, the machine backwards, you know and doing tape delay things where you're stringing tape between two or three different machines, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, like, it's all about like the ingenuity of using the mechanical, um, qualities of the instruments you're using, you know? And, and then we are also, um, in addition to magnetic tape, we were working with analog synthesizers. These are like old modular synthesizers. Like there was a Moog 900 and a Buchla 200. And, um, the way that they were set up in the studio is very simple to just run audio through them. And so I really enjoyed using those as sound processors. Um, there were like filter banks that you could hook up to VCA's and sequencers and do all kinds of things that I would just never think to do today, you know, with the plugins that I have, it was just a completely different instrument and the sort of the limited quality of it made it more fun to like think up like, how could you push that, you know? and and uh and you sort of just go home and you think, "What can I do in that studio? like what would sound real cool It was just a different kind of thing when that's what I was working
0: with well it's it's very interesting to me working in a in a digital audio space how everything still retains uh by necessity like the visual metaphors of the physical things that you actually used to do to tape right
5: yeah, it is interesting there's all these artifacts you know the thing about digital is th- it, it's it's sort of limiting to to think of it also analogous to analog recording. It, th- that can make it easier, but it's also because it's a completely different medium, it's capable of doing so many things that are, once you start sort of defining it as like an analog thing, it kind of cuts off a lot of options, you know? Sure. Like when I was a gra- an undergrad, uh, I was taking computer music classes, and this is in the days when you had to actually write code. Mm-hmm. Like you had to know C in order to make computer music. Like one of our first assignments was to generate a sound file that produced a, a sine wave. And then you generate a sound file that produces a more complex waveform that you specify what partials are there and what their relative amplitude is. And then it generates this the sound file. And so in order to do that, you kind of have to know the math behind sound and you have to know also you have to know how a a sound file is formatted, you know? and you had to all, know all these things and then you start to think about it in a completely different way with a completely different set of parameters for for how you can um manipulate it and i the computer piece i eventually made were using these fractal functions to <laughs> it was basically granular synthesis using like a fractal function to uh, determine where in a um, in a sound file
0: I would take and how long it would be, and I'm I'm not sure I understand what you mean by granular synthesis.
5: Oh, so granular synthesis is like taking little bits of a sound file, and makes um, it it's like a sample based form of synthesis that is interested in in taking little tiny bits of the sound file so like maybe a wavelet or maybe a, a very like a just a few milliseconds oh and, okay and so uh, a very common application of it is like when you stretch audio or speed mm-hmm. it up that's like a form of granular synthesis but but it's it's actually capable of doing far more sophisticated things anyway i did things that i would never think to do definitely not in an analog situation because it would be impossible but just like it, it cha- you know, your your conception of what you're doing and, and what the parameters of it are, are completely interwoven with the
0: media you're working in. So I listened to that episode of Song Exploder, which is about you making the radiotopia sting. Uh huh. Uh but that that sounds more like uh pebble synthesis than granular. Yeah, no, synthesis. that's different that's completely
5: different. That's like uh <laughs> that's <laughs> that's almost the opposite end. That's like mm-hmm. uh brute force composition (laughs) yeah sort of uh, so
0: so for for context what you did is you recorded uh an opera singer singing radiotopia radiotopia like in every possible pitch in her range and then chopped up the whole thing into syllable chunks
5: yeah yeah that was mostly just so i could because i didn't want to have to bring her in more than once yeah um i just thought it was the most efficient way to go because I didn't want to commit to the melody I was using until after I actually heard her singing it. And, and, and so my solution was just to record her at every pitch.
0: Well, I think that that says something really revealing about the style that you bring, like the editorial style that you bring to making stuff for the truth. Uh uh-huh. Um, and I was wondering, cause both you and Jad Abumrad studied music, right? You studied at U of I and he studied at what Oberlin college. Right. Um, and I was wondering if thinking musically as well as being a documentarian has affected the way that you produce audio.
5: I, I, I'm just doing what comes naturally to me and I'm just like solving problems the best way I can think of. And because I was exposed to all this experimental music when I was you know, in college, in grad school... Um, that's why I started making audio drama in the first place. Like when I started making it, I wasn't thinking of it as audio drama. I was thinking of it as an extension of the music I was making.
0: So what are you, what are you into? What do you listen to? Um, What kind of
5: music do you like? I should uh, say, um, lately, gosh, lately I've been like listening to a lot of nostalgic stuff. Like I think that music doesn't play the same role in my life as it used to anymore. I think it is really the honest answer.
0: What contributes to that, do you think? I don't know. I I listen to
5: things all day long. You know, I I I'm always working with sound, and so I think when I'm not working I just want to be quiet.
0: And I assume <laughs> you also don't want a distraction from the baby monitor.
5: Yeah, right. Yeah. I I like to sing to my baby. I like to um like dance around and sing. It seems to calm her. Do you make uh, up songs? Or yeah, those, do yeah. You, I always they, make okay. up a little song on the spot. You know, just based on what what's going on. You know, <laughs> and, and and like some, certain songs. After a while, they sort of stick. They come back. Okay, you know, uh, like baby likes to dance. <laughs> baby likes to dance, 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 dance. <laughs> That's my baby dancing song. Sure,
0: because um, <laughs> it it seemed to me from from the reading that I did and listening to other interviews that you did. That you had this like deep and abiding love of pop music. Yeah, where'd you get that from? That's interesting. Um, I think I think it was in the podcast digest interview you were talking about because your dad was a yeah um, music director for a church, right? Yeah, he's a choir director and an organist. And I mean, uh, the presence of song enotes betrays an obvious and deep love of pop music. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, I I think um, I mean when I like when I was in school, for example, I think that. Um, Frank Zappa was just as big of an influence on me as, uh, like, Steve Reich. Okay. Like, when I was in high school, like, the, the things that really, I think, stuck with me, and when I go back and listen to them, I can say, oh, yeah, that's where I got that from, are, like, uh, Pink Floyd and uh, The Police, R.E.M., The Replacements, that kind of stuff.
0: Do you find, like, are you still into Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart and uh, and Steve Reich? Well, I'm looking forward to
5: seeing this. There's a new documentary um, about Frank Zappa that's in the theaters right now. I'm kind of waiting for it to come on video. I'm really interested in seeing that. I guess I'm more interested in his biography these days. But I, like my favorite Frank Zappa albums are uh, Apostrophe and Overnight Sensation and We're Only in It for the Money and Uncle
0: Meat. I think, I, I think when I was a kid, I listened to Frank Zappa's songs sort of the same way that I listened to Weird Al Yankovic songs. Like, I don't think I I got it. I think Like a novelty song. You saw it as a novelty. Yeah, I thought of him as a novelty songwriter. Right. So, like, The Muffin Man or Don't Don't You Eat That Yellow Snow. Right. His lyrics
5: are kind of silly a lot of times, but um, he's got a very wide range of music. I mean, some of it's really difficult to listen to because it's so sophisticated. (laughs) But, no, I love how he um, uses the recording studio. He's very inventive. Like, when I was in college, I heard... I remember hearing "We're Only in It for the Money" for the first time, and I think that I came to an understanding about what I wanted to do and who I was. It was that album. It was hearing that album for the first time that really made it all kind of click into place for me. I think.
0: Do you still want to make music?
5: Uh, only for my podcast. I, I I think the the podcast is really what I wanted to do all along. Like I, I I didn't I don't think I didn't arrive here by accident. You know. Right. I arrived here because it's just what I. What came the most naturally to me and what I enjoyed the most.
0: Yeah, it it really feels like through the path I've managed to trace of your career, through all the different places that you've worked at, it really feels like the truth is the thing that you've been angling at this whole time. Yeah, yeah, that's the way it feels to me too. How did you arrive at the name The Truth for the show? Um, That was
5: when I was working with uh, Hilary Frank. We were working on pitching this as a pilot for a radio series to American public media. And uh, Hillary uh, thought of that name. She uh, found it in a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said, um, fiction reveals truth that reality obscures. And uh, it, it has all kinds of applications to what we do. You know, there's truth in comedy. There's truth in theater. There's... Um, was it Eisenstein who said film is the truth twenty four times a second? So it has all these things, but um, we, we were we were positioning what we were doing in relation to the kind of reality based like documentary programming that was on public radio. How would we convince public radio program directors that this this should have a place on their air?
0: And I, I mean, I, some of what what propelled you getting moon graffiti on PRX is that how. Roman Mars heard the piece in the first place? Or how did you initially make contact with the people that would eventually coalesce into Radiotopia?
5: I've known Roman probably since 2004. We met at Third Coast. Oh, okay. Which is a, an a audio documentary festival that's in Chicago every year. And um, that's where a lot of the people I know on radio, that the, I, I know them through that festival, was sort of like a hub. Of creative audio production, I guess you'd call it the public radio counterculture. You know, like like all the people who just wanted to shake things up and, and and do really interesting work. It was like a place for also like young people to, if they were really interested in pushing the boundaries of documentary, they could go and meet like-minded people. So so I knew I knew Roman through that, and I knew uh, like Julie Shapiro
0: through that. And, and uh, Julie Shapiro is now the executive producer at Radiotopia. Yep. Yeah. Is really nice that all comes full circle yeah
5: yeah and i mean i i gave presentations at the festival and a lot of people knew who i was i guess at that point i don't know it's a small world public radio is a small world <laughs> you know if we don't know each other then we usually know somebody who who knows and like we, we we're only one, one degree of separation and usually that person's either julie shapiro ann hepperman or lou okowski
0: <laughs> the three people i know who seem to know just like everyone uh, <laughs> So, for a number of reasons, I think partially because of the birth of your daughter, the truth is on hiatus until September. Yeah. So I was super surprised that, um, like, about an hour before you and I were scheduled to speak, there uh, you released a behind-the-scenes documentary about the production of "That's Democracy," which is the piece that you did in 2012.
5: Yeah, it's the first documentary I've made in almost three years. Mm -hmm. Um, I interviewed Lewis and I interviewed Peter McNerney, who plays the main character. And I interviewed uh, the two filmmakers who adapted the story into a film, and then we also we record all of our story meetings, and so there's a lot of tape of this of the story meeting um, <laughs> that's that became very contentious. Sure. And and, um, and then there's also I, I also still have the tape of the uh, recording session, so it's a pretty sort of comprehensive and uh, sound rich documentary.
0: Was there anything that you wish that you put into the documentary that you had to cut for time.
5: Yeah, there were a couple of things. The filmmakers I talked to for like an hour and 45 minutes in our interview, and I only have like maybe three minutes of them talking in the piece. So <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm probably going to put the full interview up on the website eventually. Cool. Um, I had a section about where we were debating whether or not to do a piece about guns in schools. Mm-hmm. It, I think it's pretty obvious what we were supposed, to, what we needed to do, so it sort of it felt like a diversion and then um i cut out another section talking about how um i was in australia when we released the piece originally and so i was editing it on an airplane to <laughs> australia in my hotel room like late at night because i had jet lag i like didn't sleep at all when we were there um,
0: what, what I, brought you to australia
5: uh, they invited us to give a workshop about how we make stories. So me and Ed Herbstman flew out there, and we had a group of maybe 20 or 25, 30 people. And uh, we
0: all collaboratively tried to make a story together in a week. <laughs> That's fabulous. We should say uh, Ed Herbstman is, the, was, is one of the founders of the Magnet Theater. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he's, he um, helped found the Magnet Theater. Yeah. And the Magnet provides a lot of the, the cast of The Truth.
5: Yeah, we work with a lot of performers there. We, uh, we meet at the training center every week for a writer's meeting. And so it's sort of our home base. Yeah, It's
0: so nice to have like a, a third place production facility that's not just someone's apartment or someone's yeah. house.
5: Oh, I mean, I do produce it in my apartment. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, that's, that's where I am most of the time. But um, no, the, yeah, the Magnet is basically where we meet. They let us use it for free, so I'm not complaining at all. That's fabulous. It's, it's nice to have a place to go.
0: Yeah. So you before you met up with Ed Herbstman and the people behind the Magnet, um, you you had been studying improv before that at Upright mm-hmm. Citizens Brigade. Yeah, I took about a year of classes there, like five classes. What led you to study improv?
5: A friend of mine, actually Eric Malinsky, who has a podcast called Imaginary Worlds. We, he and I went to an improv show one time. He was taking improv at UCB, and we went to see uh, a group called the Swarm. Billy Merritt was in it, and Michael Delaney. Oh, and Chris Gethard was in it. Chris Gethard performed, okay. marvelous. Um, and you know, this is like I didn't know any who any of these people were. They were all just people, you know. And I remember seeing Chris Gethard perform. Like, I want to, I want to I wanna work with that guy because I thought he had to, this just the most amazing voice. Anyway, I, I just remember going to that show the first time and thinking, I, I love this. This is great. I love these people. This is really cool. This is like I thought I found like maybe I found my people or
0: something, you know. I wanted to talk to you about the piece, Where Have You Been? Oh, yeah. So I don't want to spoil too much about it, because I want people to go and listen to it. But it was one of the first pieces of audio fiction that I'd ever listened to that was essentially in the second person right. for most of it. it was all It's all addressed directly to you, the listener. You occupy um, the central role in mm-hmm. the story. I was wondering, what inspired the, the structure of that piece? I wanted to do a piece
5: where the main character, it was, you never heard from them. It was all in the second person. I Where I interviewed, I thought it would be interesting to interview a bunch of improvisers and have them talk to me or, or maybe even get another improviser there, you know, and have them talk to that person, but then never use that person, you know, only use the one performer. And the idea, the original idea I had was um, I would just collect a lot of these this tape. And then through editing, through like artful omission, <laughs> I would make it sound as though they were all talking to the same person. And it would basically create this biography of a person through editing improv. And I think the idea for that came, I produced a documentary about abortion in 2003, with a producer named Ari Birnbaum actually she's named now Ari Golden. She got married.
0: And that piece is called Shades of Gray.
5: Shades of Gray, right? Okay.
0: I haven't I haven't heard it yet, but I wanted to name check it so that people could seek it out.
5: Yeah, that was a pretty important piece for me at the time. I mean, I wrote all the music as an hour-long documentary and it got a pretty nice response. Very sonically rich. And Ari collected all the tape for that. She um she collected all the material and one of the sort of recurring elements in the pieces she talked to her ex-boyfriend, and her her ex-boyfriend is talking to her. But I didn't use any of her talking; I only used the ex-boyfriend talking. And so he's constantly talking to you, you know. And it, and I really liked how it played. It, it's like he's talking to me, you know. It just changed the dynamic of what my perspective on the audio should be, and I thought it was an interesting thing to play around with. Uh, i did i just didn't hear it very much in in audio no it's
0: very striking,
5: yeah, and so I wanted to see what we could do with that and so since I was working with a lot of improvisers and also we were um I thought it would be a way of getting a story done where the burden was more on me, you know, so it would free up the other writers to work on work on other things. So you keep saying that you used to work
0: with improvisers, even though you've been working with the same actors. Yeah,
5: I still work with improvisers, yeah. But
0: it sounds like you're moving more towards, if not scripted, something closer to devised pieces. Could you describe how the writing and the development process works for making a piece, for the truth?
5: Yeah, so nowadays it's much more traditional than it was in the beginning. Um, Although, I mean, I like the idea of... Of just experimenting around and, and not having a set format like that. But I really w- like writing that is sophisticated and thought out. And um, I just think you can do a lot more with the medium that way. I was always finding myself the more something was written and thought out ahead of time, the more I, I tended to like it. And and this is like a very big, complex subject. I think there's lots of different ways to approach it. But I think that having something written, like a script written out, actually frees the actors up a lot because you don't have to worry about what the story is going to be. You can use that energy to think about how the character is expressing him or herself.
0: So it's kind of like the same constraints, that were placed on you when you were using analog equipment. That's an interesting connection to me, like the freeing constraint of that.
5: Yeah, I find that um, it doesn't keep the actors necessarily from giving me the same kinds of material I'm interested in getting. It just it helps the the improvisation to be more focused
0: and useful. So you have like a really tight outline, and then they improvise that outline into being. What is it? What does it look like?
5: Lately, we just write a script. I mean, we've done it all kinds of different ways. I mean, we've done outlines, we've done very very open ended things, but lately. Um, it'll be scripted out, and I always have the actors get to the point where they can do it from memory. I think that's very important. Um, I think that in audio drama, there's a real temptation to think, oh, because no one can see you, then it's okay to hold a script up. You
0: you can tell. You can always tell when someone's a little bit too on book.
5: Yeah. It completely affects the sound of the performer. I just think it's easier to get to the place where I want to get... If they're not reading it from a page, you know, if they're actually performing the text you know if they're if they're more engaged with their bodies and their voices i also that brings up another thing that i really think is important is the pieces that i'm most satisfied with are the ones where the performers are moving around in a space Mm -hmm. and using their whole bodies in the performance i'm not of the school of thought that thinks that because you can't see anything that means you have to do more with the voice I don't like that at all. I just like to capture the way people actually talk in in actual life. And then I can like use my editing skills to decide whether or not I'm the the meaning is being conveyed or not, you know. Mm-hmm. I I and I just like to work with performances that feel naturalistic in that way. And so I like like I like to have actors driving around and moving around and and I like them to turn their heads away from the microphone. Right. You know, and I like I like to hear hear them really use a space and use their bodies and not I don't like them to think about the fact that it's just an audio thing. I want that to be beside the point. I want them to just behave and we'll capture We're just capturing the audio but that doesn't mean the other things
0: aren't important. What was the piece you rented a car because none of you had cars in New York that you drove everyone around for?
5: Oh yeah we've done that a bunch of times but the the one you're probably thinking of is uh, Interruptible. In that case I wanted a car. I knew I couldn't get a taxi but i wanted a car that had vinyl or leather interior <laughs> so that
0: okay. it would sound like a taxi cab. you get kind of the awkward sticky squeaking
5: yeah i wanted that and like the like it sound bounces around differently and i like there's something about the i don't know the slap back of a of <laughs> vinyl seats that i thought like is really cool what do you
0: mean by <laughs> slap back like the way that like the... like a
5: little a slightly delay you know like uh-huh. it's just like a, it has a um, i don't know tingy,
0: tingy sound to it interesting so in 2012 the Truth was a SoundCloud fellow. And part of that in, involved you getting funded to do these election horror stories. Right. I think I think there were four of them, right? There's, uh, there's five. That's Democracy, Third Party, Do You Have a Minute for Equality, The Death of Poe. Right. And what's it, number five?
5: The Modern Prometheus. Oh, the, okay. Yeah, it was also PRX funded that. So it's PRX and SoundCloud.
0: You know, this is a, a pretty big election year. Do you have anything in the hopper for Halloween election year twenty sixteen?
5: Uh, we do not. <laughs> okay. We thought about it, but um, the stories we're working on in the fall we're starting back with a, a new story every two weeks, Okay. and um, we're we're doing regular stories and we're alternating them with Song of episodes. And so right now we are working on. We've got the script for the next Song of episode pretty much ready to record i think we're we're gonna try to record it next week
0: and through this we haven't actually talked about what song of is could you just pitch the listener on that real quick um uh, it's uh it's a band a sort of a struggling indie band
5: loses their drummer and they get a magical drum machine in the mail that uh when they play songs with the drum machine it transports them into their songs
0: there it is <laughs> yeah i've been ha- I've, I've been having a lot of fun listening to song of cool and- and and flicking back fifteen seconds to hear the little song snippets.
5: Yeah, yeah, the songs are amazing. I think Jonathan Mann is a brilliant songwriter. They're really catchy. They're the kinds of things like when I'm working on the piece, like that's like all that's going through my head are those damn songs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you, you you're gonna have a every two week release schedule. You're working on yeah. more song and not stuff right now.
5: Yeah, and then uh, probably it's looking like the first piece will probably be a story about. Uh, pair of college freshman roommates one of whom talks in his sleep okay another story we're working on is a story that lewis and um another writer carly minardo are working on together that is about a woman who has a strange disease okay that i won't go too much into but it's interesting another piece working on is about a woman who's on a subway and hears god through the subway announcements sure and um (laughs) has to has to take an action that but she's too embarrassed to do it, um, but it's by a very very funny writer who's named Sarah Siskind, who uh, does a lot of sketch stuff at UCB. Cool. So,
0: what what makes a story right for the truth as opposed to right for a different medium? Like, have you ever come up with something and kicked it around with the writers and then say, you know what, this would be better as a short film or this would be better as a short story?
5: I think it has happened, but. Um, Usually, that's not why we why we choose not to do something. Usually, we we choose not to do something because we can't figure out how to make it work. <laughs> okay. It's like if something is too visual, then we try to think of a of an RL analog for it. Okay. Like a very simple example is, like, okay, if someone's a visual artist. We may we might say, well, what if we made him a musician? You know. Sure. Um, okay. Usually, I mean, I'm working on with the writers on the stories at the very beginning and all throughout the whole process, and so. There's like the shaping and back and forth that goes on. And so usually the the medium, the constraints of the medium or the strengths of the medium are are sort of baked into the process. And we choose to work on the story because it the idea itself suggests that it would work well in audio. And then we just play to those strengths. Like there's a story we did called Visible that I, I really think turned out well that the premise felt like a really natural fit for audio it's a a a blind man and has an app seeing eye app that sort of talks him through gives him directions but um it was really hard to write because that premise isn't really a story it's just a a device and so um the hard thing with that story was figuring out well if we want to center around center the story around this device what does that actually mean in terms of like what the story should be and what how do we narrow this down? Who is this guy, you know? Sure.
0: What is he using that device yeah. to do? Where is he going? You know. I, I really like that piece. Cool, thank you. Thank you a lot. Yeah. Um That that same episode had a piece by Crystal Duhame, Yeah. And
5: Mira Burt Wintonic.
0: Yeah. And those are those are producers that used to work on the late Lamented Wiretap. That's right. Um, yeah, they have
5: a new show called Love Me. Yeah. How did you hook
0: up with those two? I
5: think Julie Shapiro sort of tipped me off. And so I contacted them. I, I I heard some of their pieces that they'd done for Wiretap, and um, actually I was in at the Hearsay Festival. They were at the Hearsay Festival in Colfinan.
0: Are there more people crammed into Kullfinn than the whole population of I Like how many?
5: Yeah, there were there were two hundred radio producers there. Oh my God, <laughs> it was yeah. For all practical purposes, the radio people or audio people took over the town, and uh, and so they were both there. And so I talked to them for a long time about working together on something, but. Before, actually, before I even met them there, I think we had already planned to, for me to air. I think it was the call of dating piece, and then the GPS piece. I thought thematically, it was it was a good pairing with the visible piece.
0: What are you What are you looking for? What makes you happy?
5: Um in in audio drama,
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't <laughs> I don't need to pick a, pick that apart on a on a very like existential level. Although I'm happy to.
5: I like it when the performances are really good. I want what I'm trying to make is work that I don't even realize I'm listening to. Like when I remember the story, I want it to be like like the medium is irrelevant, you know? It's like it happened. That happened. And so I like to be immersed in the story. And that doesn't mean like a really really like ornate sound design or like lots of sound stuff going on. It means that um I'm I'm so into the story that I feel like I'm a part of it.
0: Kind of like yeah. a radio verite kind of deal.
5: Yeah, yeah, I, I really like that kind of stuff. I like stuff that sounds very naturalistic, and um, I like. Oh, I love. There's a heart piece that actually it was their show is called Audio Smut when they released it called Movies in Your Head um, that I just thought was amazing. I love that piece. I think it's. I think it's better than anything we've done on the truth, personally. The, the sort of that emotional me- immediacy of that piece is just so beautiful.
0: Is that when the two women meet on a train? Too? Yeah. Okay, I've heard it's, that
5: piece. It's so intimate, and the music and sound design is really sophisticated and cool and arty. And it I felt like something I, I, that I love that I wouldn't have probably made on my own. Like, I, I like things that uh, surprise me and use the medium in different ways, tell me stories that I, I don't expect to hear, that don't feel derivative I think that audio drama should be as good as anything on television or in film. I agree. I don't I don't like believe in making apologies for it, you know. It should be good. Mm-hmm. I feel like I really want audio drama to be like a mainstream kind of or I don't mainstream is the wrong word. It's like I want it to be culturally accepted as being like a normal thing that people do. And I think that that's only going to happen if lots and lots of people are doing it. Yeah and there's a like a wide varied culture of it is it stylistic diversity
0: that you're seeking to
5: i guess i to me i don't just on an intuitive level it feels wrong to say that because you like audio drama you're going to like this other audio drama. Right.
0: That's like saying, Oh, you like, you
5: like the Godfather. I bet you're going to love saw. Exactly. Like I make novels, you make novels. Let's form a network. You know, Well, no, it doesn't work. That's not how people listen. That's not people, how people read novels. You know, my strategy has always been to, uh, build on an audience by reaching outside, by reaching for people who might like what I'm doing, who aren't listening to audio drama already and i think that's that's where those people are living now i think the people who are eventually going to like it if if it's going to become a big thing are not listening to it at all but they do listen to things there's a huge audience for podcasting and this is changing i mean sure. like i i mean the world i'm describing maybe is a little bit for like 3 or 4 years ago nowadays there's a lot of people listening to audio
0: drama Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate
5: it. It's nice to talk to you. Nice to kind of get to know you a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for playing the piece, too. It's really
0: nice. Well, folks, if you think what you heard was really nice, head on over to truthpodcast.com subscribe with your favorite podcast catch and method, and give a lovely review. That's how we make money, probably. Now, I must hit you with another truth. This episode of Radio Drama Revival is over. Let me read some credits at you. Our theme music was assembled in a secret NSA laboratory by Dr. DJ Stranger Danger. It broke loose one muggy evening and has never been heard again, till now. If you like what you hear, check him out on SoundCloud. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau, who are quite handy with the technology for reasons they are unable to explain. It's second nature to them, almost uncanny-like. Our producer this week is Eli McElveen, subbing in for Matthew Boudreau as he and Monique cart their youngin' off to college. You can find Eli's audio drama work at Alba Salix, that's A-L-B-A-S-A-L-I-X.com, or find him at his personal website at forgeryleague.com. Thanks, Eli. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhounge, who lives in an out-of-the-way house, very much like the one in today's piece. Sometimes strangers come by on rainy nights. Sometimes they stay for a very long time. A very, very long time. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. You've been listening to Radio Drama Revival, and until next time, I'm telling you stories. Trust me.